whether or not you're officially an entrepreneur, let me ask you this. What skills do you think an entrepreneur requires? I mean, what does it take to start your own initiative and make it a success, whether that's a for-profit or a not-for-profit organization? I've been mulling it over, and I think there might be four things that you should consider table stakes. And two of them sound like technical skills, marketing and selling. But if you don't know how to make your offer sound valuable, and if you don't know how to ask for a fair exchange of value for whatever that offer is, well, you're just not going to flourish. As a third skill, I would nominate a tolerance of risk. It doesn't have to be a huge tolerance, but you need to understand what that tolerance is for you. Because when it's your initiative, what's at risk just becomes a little more pointy, a little sharper. And you just need to understand what you're willing to lose and what you're not willing to lose. Finally, there's a fourth table stakes thing that you need as an entrepreneur. Let me add persistence. Because most everything takes longer than expected. A willingness to not quit just yet is so helpful as an entrepreneur. But here's what I'm thinking, and maybe you're thinking this as well. Who wouldn't benefit from building capacity in those four areas? Know your worth and share it. Be brave. Keep going. Perhaps we should all consider ourselves entrepreneurs. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that shaped them. Ashish Advani is a friend, he's a successful entrepreneur, and he's now a social innovator who has led Junior Achievement Worldwide, JA as it's often called, since 2015. And is he doing a good job? Well, right now here in 2022, they've just been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. So I'd say he's doing okay. Now, Ashish has come full circle because he's also an alumnus of JA. And it's actually his participation in that group that led him to entrepreneurship early in life. And as he describes his learning curve, it sounds strangely familiar. My story is really not dissimilar to a lot of entrepreneurs where we start off really early thinking that we're right about everything and then realize we're, we're not. But he got things right enough. In my 20s, I created a company, um, which was one of the first social finance companies, person-to-person lending is what it used to be called. It's called Circle Lending, and it was bought by Virgin. So I worked for Richard Branson for two years, which was an amazing experience. After that, he started another fintech company that, once again, he sold. So after starting and selling two companies, now what? Do you just keep doing that? I decided to um, start a whole new career, really, by running a global nonprofit called Junior Achievement. A junior Achievement Worldwide is uh, in 115 countries, and we're really one of the few um, nonprofits that has achieved scale around the world. Um, so it's been incredibly fulfilling for me to be part of an organization that teaches entrepreneurship to young kids. For me, it's a chance to give back. Nobody taught me entrepreneurial skills when I was growing up. I mean, honestly, I assumed I was going to have a steady long-term career like my dad, probably in the government, because that, that's kind of the only options I could see growing up in Canberra in Australia. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur till I was fired from a job at 35, and I had to be an entrepreneur because I was basically now unhirable. But it was different for Ashish. He had an inkling at an early age. So for me, it was when people kept telling me, you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> I sort of realized, well, maybe um, they might be right. 
And uh, they started telling me that pretty early. So middle school, high school was when I got that positive reinforcement from mm. people around me. Um, and then I think I became a real entrepreneur when I sort of left my job and went all in on my first startup in my late 20s. Yeah. I often wonder that when you make a commitment to be an entrepreneur, you've got some people who've seen you and called you forth on it, but often you also disappoint people, people who had expectations of a more traditional career. Were there people who were disappointed when you went, <laughs> I'm off on, I'm leaving my job and I'm off to become an, an entrepreneur? Well, the story of my childhood was the story of disappointing my parents at every turn. <laughs> and I say that um, only partly in jest because my brother, uh, who's um, elder to me by about four years, yeah. he had done everything right. I mean, really everything right. He <laughs> went to Harvard, he um, won all these math contests, and he was yeah. just really good at everything. And he still is good at everything, um, but I'm much less, um, um, what's the right word? I think the word is envious of him than I right. was in those days. But definitely, I really looked up to him and I thought, how am I gonna, you know, classic sibling rivalry. He was the smart one, so I guess I had to be the social one. Right. Um, and so my parents sort of leaned into the younger child as a social one. And that made me probably feel more entrepreneurial, frankly. Yeah. Did you have to navigate your decision to be an entrepreneur with them? Or was it kind of a, look, <laughs> I need to do something different from my brother. So I'm off on this path now. Well, by then, while, you know, while I was in my late 20s, um, I think they had um, lost influence over all my decisions. So it didn't really matter. But I think they were proud of me mainly because um, by then I'd already checked a few of the important boxes for them, having mm -hmm. graduated and gotten married and all that stuff. So they really felt that um, I, I was in charge. You weren't a complete disappointment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I sort of climbed past five out of 10. Hey, you, you've gone from being an entrepreneur to championing an organization that globally encourages entrepreneurship with young people. How, how has your idea of what it takes to be an entrepreneur evolved? Well, I think my definition as well of entrepreneurship has really changed as I've traveled around the world. Mm. I think in a very, um, let's say, North American or Western European context, we tend to look at tech pioneers these days as the archetypical entrepreneurs because uh, they get a lot of the, um, the column inches in newspapers, if people read newspapers anymore, they get a lot of time on podcasts. <laughs> they get a lot of time on podcasts. There we go. Uh, but I think as I've traveled around the world, I realized that first of all, there's billions, literally billions of people around the world who have a very different definition of what an mm. entrepreneur is. Mm. Uh, closer to a self-employed um, individual who can create a job for themselves and a job for a few others. Right. And the vast majority of jobs around the world are created by these entrepreneurs. Yeah. And um, so as my definition has evolved by seeing and meeting many of these people, I realize that the job of what we do as junior achievement is certainly not to just um, create the next Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. It really is to help create um, a mindset of young people who feel very confident and able to take the kind of risk that they need to, to create a job for themselves and a job for others. And part of that is just understanding who you are and when you're sort of ready to take that sort of risk and having all the social safety nets, whether they're financial right. or, or reputational, that can get you through difficult times. That's really interesting. That's a very interesting framing to kind of go, what we're building is capacity for risk. Because with an increased capacity of risk, you're more likely to place a bet 
that may pay off, but also may not pay off. Where did you get your capacity for risk? Because you've started two companies, you've then changed career and become CEO of a whole nonprofit, which is a whole nother risk. But is it, have you always had that or has it been something you've cultivated? I don't think I've thought about it as explicitly and strategically as you've just framed it. I do think that de-risking any situation is what we do all the time. It's human nature to de-risk situations. Mm. You can de-risk it by you know, getting a graduate degree, which allows you to always get a job in some field. You can de-risk it by having skills, which are very, very specific, that allow you to, um, once again, have a bit of a backup plan. Um, or you can de-risk it by having a financial cushion or having um, a family who's going to support you regardless of what happens. Yeah. So I think, as I think of de-risking around the world, um, it's not just about, um, it's not just about, let's say, education and skill building. It really is also about mindset shift. Right. And what have you learned about shifting mindset? Because that's not that's not that's a, a, a casual thing to throw out. It's just about shifting mindset, and it's everything, and it's really hard. <laughs> like it's the field I work in, and trying to shift behavior and shift mindset is a constant challenge to actually make that happen in practice rather than just in theory. So. What have you learned about the nuance of how do you shift a mindset? So it's a really interesting question. For me, and this will shock you maybe, <laughs> shifting mindset is easier uh -huh. than shifting skill set. True. Yeah, so, I can see that. Um, particularly because I probably interact with younger people than you do in what you do and what I do. And for me, um, something as simple, if, if you have 100 hours with somebody, I, I think it's easier at the age of, say, 14 to 17 to make a meaningful difference on shifting mindset than on, on, on shifting skill set. Yeah. Um, I know that's a gross generalization, but let me give you a few concrete examples of how you actually, particularly for a 14 to 17 year old, make an impact on mindset. One is through role models. Right. So you introduce a 14 to 17 year old with somebody who has the kind of career that they might want or may want to learn about, who comes from exactly the same background as them. So once again, not, not Elon Musk and Steve Jobs or Richard Branson, right. but Somebody who's, if you're talking to a girl from Kenya, another Kenyan woman who went to the same high school mm -hmm. and now works in a wonderful organization or has been a successful entrepreneur. And now that person, that, 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 that 14 to 17 year old girl from Kenya looks at herself differently than she did before that introduction. Yeah. There's so much to talk about here. And after we've heard your reading, I want to talk about why a peace prize when you're promoting entrepreneurship to young people. But let's talk about the book you've selected. What have you chosen for us? So I've chosen the book Loon Shots by Safi Bacall. I love this. I know Safi. He's uh, been on an earlier version of this show. So great choice. Um, but what about this book spoke to you? So I met Safi years ago while he was working on the book. Uh, actually, I knew him even before then, but I got to know him um, more substantially when he was working on the book. And uh, he's part of the same group that we're part of, that, yeah. the Marshall Goldsmith group. So I've gotten to know him. Um, even more through that now. And um, this book, I had my entire team read it as well. Uh, and one reason is, I think it really frames um, how innovation and how um, creativity happens mm -hmm. in organizations. Yeah. And it frames it in a way that's very actionable. Mm. And the reading that I've chosen, which I'll go into in a second, is, is about the right size of teams Nice. to enable that innovation to continue to be fostered. I love that. 
Well, look, I'm, I'm keen to plunge right in. So why don't I hand it over, the mic, literally and metaphorically over to you, Ashish, um, reading from Safi's wonderful book, Loon Shots. All right. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit, so it's not sure. exactly two pages, because I wanted to keep it interesting, but it's um, close to that. Okay. I'll, I'll tell Safi that you cut out the boring bits of his passage when I email him this. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll quickly realize that as he hears me reading, if he, if he listens to this. All right, here we go. Robin Dunbar, a researcher in the Department of Anthropology at University College London, who specialized in the social habits of Gelada baboons, published an unusual article. In his 1992 article, Dunbar listed measures of brain volume and average social group size for 38 species of lemurs, monkeys, and apes. He showed that if you plotted one measure of brain volume, size of neocortex, versus social group size, the plot seemed to lie along a straight line. The bigger the brain, the larger the group. So Dunbar proposed a novel idea. The size of a species' brain determines the optimal size of their social groups. Maintaining relationships, argued Dunbar, requires brain power. More relationships require more neurons. Extrapolating his straight line from primate brains to human brains, he found that the optimal human group size, if this hypothesis were true, would be an interesting number, 150. Despite Dunbar's obvious gifts for writing about monkeys, the article attracted little attention. Then in 2000, Malcolm Gladwell published The Tipping Point, a blockbuster that included a chapter titled The Magic Number 150. The chapter summarized Dunbar's monkey brain versus group size results, as well as Dunbar's observations that mean group sizes in some hunter-gatherer societies and the smallest independent units of professional armies cluster around this number. Gladwell added the interesting example of Gore Associates, the maker of Gore-Tex fabric, which limits how many people work together in one building. We put 150 parking spaces in the lot, the president of Bill Gore said, when people start parking on the grass, we know it's time to build a new plant. The idea of a hardwired cutoff at 150 human relationships set by volume of the human brain went viral. Dave Morin, an early employee at Facebook, consulted with Dunbar and created a new type of social network, PATH, based on the idea of limiting everyone to 150 friends. Minerva, the recently launched elite online university, plans cohorts of 150 students, citing Dunbar. Popular business and sociology blogs, like this one, continue to spread the idea of Dunbar's number. Bill Gore, Malcolm Gladwell, and Robin Dunbar may have been onto something. For typical real-world values of control parameters, there is, in fact, a sudden change in incentives around the magic number 150. At that size, the balance of forces in the tug of war changes, and the system suddenly snaps from favoring a focus on loon shots to a focus on careers. That's interesting. We're going to have to unpack that a little bit. But Ashish, what is it about this that just rings true for you and has been influential for you as a CEO? Well, partly because I come from um, a series of tech startups, I have definitely noticed as the, as the number of employees grows, the focus on um, innovation and impact decreases 
at the um, at the expense or or in, in, in favor of career paths and organizational politics. Right. So that observation rings very true to my own observation. Yeah. Um, I've also worked in some larger organizations where I've definitely seen um, the balance between innovation and impact being impacted as group size increases. And it, right. in my current role, JA is structured as a network of teams. Yes. So we are a network of teams in 115 countries, 340 uh, locations around the, the world, because many countries have multiple locations. And each location has a team that is not larger than 150. The vast mm-hmm. majority are much smaller than that. And I think, frankly, the smaller you go, um, almost in a linear way until you get to like five, yeah. um, there is tremendous innovation and tremendous um, focus on impact uh, and not focus on, on, on in my view, uh, less productive things. I, I believe this to be true. You, you can correct me but if I'm wrong. But um, you know, when you started being CEO at JA, which was what, five years ago or six years ago? Uh, seven. Seven years ago, wow. Um, you came into an organization that had been both successful and had also, this will be my words, not yours, but maybe stagnated a little bit or plateaued perhaps is an, another way of putting it. And uh, it feels to me from the previous conversations we've had, um, part of what you're been doing is revitalizing uh, this organization and helping it become fit for purpose in the 21st century. Um, and clearly you've had some great success with that, Nobel Peace Prize, the, oh, you've been recognized by Fast Company, you've had some great donations come in recently from big, big uh, donors. But I'm curious to know how this insight around size of team also feeds into your hard-won learning now of what does it take to shift the way an organization thinks about itself and the culture an organization has, particularly one as dispersed and as multicultural as JA. Wow, you said a lot there. So let me um, unpack a Sorry, little bit. Sorry, 97 <laughs> questions there. So I'll just settle back for the rest of the conversation. No, I'll try to be brief. I'll say, first of all, my predecessor and my predecessors as leaders did a really effective job focused on what the needs were of the organization at the moment. So my immediate predecessor, for example, created standardization by having a, um, a common member agreement, which every national office effectively signed or opted into. And that created the basis of um, things you can build from, a framework that you can build from. Um, uh, under my sort of term of leadership, um, the chair of the board, um, when I joined, was very focused on growth while his predecessor as chair of the board was less focused on growth. Mm. So when I was um, brought in as a leader, the prism in which we viewed our success was about taking our existing impact and reaching more young people, not just for the sake of reaching more young people, but for the sake of deepening the impact of the organization Mm. and bringing more scale. And that drove many decisions because that became the strategic prism in which we looked at what was successful and what was not successful. Um, and I believe that innovation um, is core to growth. Right. For example, to be able to just reach more young people, you can either raise twice as much money to reach twice as many young people, or you can be more efficient with the money that you raise and deploy it uh, in more creative ways. So, and to me, that means technology yeah. and partnerships. Right. Uh, which is, I would say, very common. If you were to look at the world of nonprofits, 
Mm. I would say the vast majority of nonprofit leaders would say technology and partnerships bring more scale. However, um, the challenge is how do you do that in uh, 115 countries? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, I've spent much of my time trying to magnify the impact of our organization by making us all feel part of one global network not, and not 115 separate mm. legal and or actually 340 separate legal entities spread around 115 countries. And um, I think this framework from Loonshots has helped me do that. Right. Because it's really helped me see innovation as something that doesn't necessarily happen um, all the time by the same group of people. Yes. <laughs> but it happens um, through unexpected events that create these magical loon shots <laughs> that can actually take you from not just yeah. point A to B, but point A to like J or, or yeah. you know, further. Somewhere down the alphabet. Yes. So, um, so that's, I guess, a short answer to your question. Yeah. Um, but this, this, the core, I think, to our organization is the fact that we embrace the fact that there's diversity, true mm. diversity, at a global level, not just at a national level. You, as you've said, 115 country, 340 locations. That's, that's double Dunbar's number and then some. You know, when you're introducing yourself, you're like, you know, my, my brother's super smart. I'm more of the social one. How do you think about managing relationships? Because I think that is one of your superpowers from what I've observed is like, you actually are very well connected. Not just, I know some people, but I, I build links with people that, that stick. I'm an example of that. Um, how, how do you think about the people within your sphere and nurturing those relationships? Well, within our organization, I'll answer it first within and then, and then I'll answer it outside the organization. Um, we're structured a bit like a corporation in that there are regional leaders, a leader for Africa, a leader for yeah. Europe, a leader for Asia Pacific. Yeah. And so they interact much more with the national leaders Got than it. I would. While I know them, of course, and I travel and meet them, the, the interaction is by design um, to enable you know, any one person to not have to have a span of control over 150 individuals they have to right. know in the organization. That would be yeah, crazy, yeah. right? <laughs> right. So um, that's internal. But external, I think your question is really more about how you manage external relationships. Yeah. And you know, Jay, over the course of the last, um, say, six or seven years while I've been here, has collectively as an organization, as a network, you know, raised well over $2 billion. It's amazing. From many, many, many funders. So the number of funders is in the tens of thousands, not the hundreds. So there's no individual, not me, not my colleagues at JWY, who has all these relationships. Right. And each of the local teams manages their own relationships. But as it turns out, and this is where it gets very complicated, many of these local relationships and national relationships are associated with global companies that also fund the organization in a different geography. Right. And that's where it gets very complicated fast. Yeah. And that's where the culture matters a lot. Mm -hmm. The culture of not harming each other and feeling part of something bigger than yourself yeah. is in my mind a really big part of not just my job, but the job of the board members and the, and the senior executives to really ensure that we don't think of ourselves as um, a disparate set of warring tribes, yeah. but a, a global organization that's moving um, not necessarily in the same direction, but with the same set of values and the same mission. Has there been uh, a particular intervention that's helped bring that alignment? 
because as you say, you could have a whole bunch of loosely federated states all kind of warring against each other. And honestly, you hear about this, you know, in a different context. I remember reading years ago, McKinsey going, how do we actually have the teams and the client teams within McKinsey collaborate and work for the sake of the firm rather than in a kind of competition within the firm? Um, I'm wondering, I mean, it just feels like a really hard challenge to me. And I'm wondering, has there been a significant intervention that's made a difference or has it just been a lot of persistence over seven years? I think it's a series of things and it's all about people. It's really yeah. all about people. To some degree, there's some processes and some systems and some rules. I'm of the opinion that, you know, a consistency is the enemy of progress. So, you know, forcing Asia Pacific to have exactly the same structure as Europe or the exact same structure as the United States, uh, it's just silly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the only people who I think appreciate that is people who look at board slides um, at the global <laughs> level, like nobody else right. wants that. So um, I, I guess I've um, been uh, using this language, this framework called fixed, flexible freestyle, mm, where there's some things that. that are globally fixed, yeah. some things that are regionally flexible, and some things that are locally freestyle. Right. And um, we've achieved some recognition for this framework, actually. Uh, the Tony Shea Award, named after a Tony, who's really one of my role models, has, um, so we were awarded that because of this framework. And um, I think one reason why it's achieved such recognition is I think the world right now is very fragmented mm -hmm. and polarized and people don't necessarily want to get along. Yeah. And what I've liked about this framework is it's simple language. People get yeah. it right away. Yeah. You don't have to sign a new agreement with each other when you launch something. Right. Um, in fact, the agreements become easier to um, write and sign because you introduced this language one or two or three years earlier and people are like, well, right. I guess we're already doing this. So why don't we just sign it? We're already doing it. <laughs> right. And right. so we've introduced it for brand guidelines, impact measurement, technology, and um, a number of other things that continue to sort of um, be needed, risk management, et cetera, where we can um, have some things that truly people buy into, uh, which support our theory of change and our impact uh, at the global level, which are fixed. And mm. some things which genuinely need to be different between Europe and Africa, which yeah. are flexible. And then most of the decisions, most of the decisions are um, really made at a local level. So it's freestyle. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, at a, a much smaller scale, Ashish, of the agreement I have with the CEO of Box of Crayons. And we're like, how do we figure out where responsibility lies? And we took a model from Susan Scott about a tree. It's like a uh, root. Uh, root trunk branch tweaks and roots are my decisions to make. And there are very, very few of them as the chair of the board for box of crayons trunk are her decisions to make, but she will talk to me about them before she makes her decision. Branches are decisions I will one day hear about perhaps in a newsletter or as I kind of catch up and then tweaks are the stuff I'm never going to hear about. And we're constantly renegotiating or just re-examining that our tree around how does control and influence sit between the two of us. I love that metaphor. I might have to use that as well. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a constant consumer of metaphor. So thank you for adding to my, my repertoire. My pleasure. If I can dig further into this, how, how have you learned to walk what appears to me an elegant balance between control and influence? Oh, I have no control. I have zero control. I, it's a very simple balance. I have influence, but very little control. In fact, I'm happily surprised when I realize I have control. That's, it's a bit like a marriage. You know, when you're happily surprised that, um, that right. your spouse actually says, oh, you're right. It, it's better to just assume that you're wrong at all times. In a similar way, right. I'm, I'm, 
I'm being facetious, um, you know, I think intentionally here by, there's a wonderful book, Keith Ferrazzi, A Leading yes. Without Authority. You know, Keith Ferrazzi, yeah. both yeah. you know him and I know him, and he's a, really a wonderful man. And um, his book, Leading Without Authority, which is on my bookshelf behind me, it really, uh, I use it quite often um, because it really does remind me that there's so many things that you can do if you don't have control. Right. And frankly, it's so much better for everyone. <laughs> it really is. There's absolutely no reason why somebody sitting in Boston should tell people in Malaysia or Japan right. or India what they should be doing. There's just no, zero, there's no reason. So you sound calm when you say that. And I like to think that I'm okay some of the time, most of the time, perhaps with, I have very little control and all I have is influence, but there are sometimes I get twitchy <laughs> about stuff. Uh, do you feel anxiety about the lack of control or, and if you do, how do you, how do you manage with that? Well, my colleagues um, at the worldwide level, of course, would love it if I were more, so let's say, um, control oriented, right. uh, because my philosophy of, um, let all flowers bloom makes their job harder. Mm -hmm. And I fully recognize that. And I do my best to support them and to clear obstacles in their way um, as much as I can. Um, having said that, clearly um, there are cases where you've got to exercise the control using the governance tools at your disposal, particularly right. if there's real risk or if there's ethics or if there's um, you know, things that could really harm the organization. Yeah. Uh, but those are few and far between, thankfully, in our organization. So most of the instincts for control that leaders have, I will say, is because they think their opinion about something <laughs> is um, smarter, better, faster, cheaper yeah. than their colleague. Yeah. And it's taken me years. I mean, years. I'm still not amazing at it. And Marshall's, by the way, helped with this. And Mark Thompson, our other common friend, have helped with yes. this. But just letting that go and realizing that it's possible. It's possible that <laughs> other people know more than you do. Yeah. And that you're not the smartest person in your room. Yeah. Or, or uh, given what you say in your books, it's better to be curious rather than be um, prescriptive about yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are, for me, really great leadership lessons, given my role. Yeah. That's great. Um, actually, this has been such a wonderful conversation. You, I, I, I see you as a, an aspirational figure in terms of leading an organization. And I think JA is an aspirational organization. Oh, so I'm not going to wrap up the interview because I want to ask you this. Nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which is extraordinary. Congratulations. Um, make the connection to me between helping young people become more entrepreneurial and how that contributes to a more peaceful world. Sure. In fact, one of the things I'm proudest of in this nomination for the organization um, is that it brings a magnifying glass to this connection between entrepreneurship, prosperity, and peace. Mm. In fact, if you look at many of the past winners, um, about a quarter have been organizations and about three quarters have been individuals. Um, it's rare. Uh, I don't think I've found any that really have magnified that relationship. Right. So um, I don't believe that we're going to win this year. I'd be, of course, would be delighted if we did. But I would, uh, if you look at organizations that have been nominated in the past, they're typically nominated multiple times before right. it's sort of their year. Um, and especially given what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine, I would, I would, I, yeah. I would expect there to be um, a laureate along those lines. Um, so um, for me, this connection between entrepreneurship, prosperity, and peace is one which um, is so important because you can't really have peace without prosperity. Mm. And you can't really have prosperity unless um, young people believe that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday and they can actually 
create um, sort of economic livelihoods for themselves and economic opportunity for the people around them. And um, I think that's, um, it's often assumed, I think, when we um, award people with um, sort of not just Peace Prize awards, but we recognize um, that there's a peaceful situation. We just assume that there must be some prosperity. But to actually say that you need to invest in mindset and skill set to build prosperity is yeah. so critical. Yeah. And given where we're headed in the world with um, more and more automation and AI, I fully expect that this um, need to have organizations, whether it's ours or the many others that really focus on young people having that skill set and mindset to own their own economic success, I think it's going to be more important in the future. I'm delighted that she's brought up Dunbar's number through reading Safi's book, Loonshots, because she's as a particularly gifted cultivator of connections. And perhaps this is the deepest lesson for me anyway, from the podcast. What does it take to, to start, to nurture, to keep a vibrant community around you? I've seen some depressing statistics that say that the number of us with a tight group of close friends is falling while the number of us with no close friends is actually increasing, and more so for men than women. Men are very lonely. Robin Dunbar has said that friendships end either by gradually fading out or by cataclysmic collapse. It's not always easy to see or predict the cataclysm or the apocalypse, but I bet you could do something about the gradual fading out. Do you know who your 15, your 50, your 150 people are? And what if it was you? What if you were the person who is committed to keeping these friendships supple and generous and alive and whole? If you enjoyed this conversation, let me suggest two other interviews for you. Zach first, that interview is called To Manage With Courage. You can find that by scrolling through the podcast. And also Seth Levine, a socially hearted venture capitalist called How To Build Something. If you'd like more on Ashish and his work, well, actually, I'm going to point you to the JA work. Um, JAWorldwide.org is the uh, global website. Um, and you'll also see celebration of entrepreneurs at the Business Hall of Fame.org. So JAWorldwide.org and the Business Hall of Fame.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a fan of the podcast. Thank you for giving it love as a review or stars or words on a site somewhere. Thank you for sharing the interviews that strike you in particular. Um, I'm, I love slowly but surely growing the, the listener base of this podcast, and I appreciate all you've done to help with that. You're awesome. and You're doing great. <laughs>